0: We are in our last Sunday in the God and Sex series. Next week, we will begin a uh, new series called Singleness in the Kingdom of God. And in that series, uh, we'll be having a lecture on dating, which something people have been asking for in our church since like week two of our church. So we're finally getting around to that. So that's um, next, the next series, which I think is a really good compliment and continuation of the series that we're in right now, and God and sex. Um, I want to let you know how grateful I am that so many of you are engaging in these difficult topics that we've been going through. For those of you who were here at the beginning of the year, might remember me telling the church that uh, the second half of the year would be challenging and demanding. And um, and I just want to let you know that I did what I promised. It's been challenging and demanding. And um, I really hope that we, we equipped and pastored you well to have these conversations that we've been having as a church. It doesn't make them that much easier to have, just hopefully better equipped to have them. Today I want to uh, teach a sermon that I'm calling Sex Etc. Uh, basically today is just a bunch of pastoral stuff that I've been wanting to say but couldn't make it fit into the first three weeks of the series. And uh, so there might not be much of a story arc today. Um, I'm basically just going to read 1 Thessalonians and talk through it. Um, I'm going to, if you play baseball or know about the game of baseball, um, I'm going to use a baseball analogy right now. Uh, Today, I'm just going to try to keep the ball over the plate like I'm a pitcher. I'm just, I'm not going to try to get fancy. I'm not going to try to throw anything really like kind of to throw everyone off. I just want to as much as I can, keep the ball over the plate. Now, and also another added layer today is I'm a bit sad. I'm kind of coming to the, the pulpit a bit sad. Um, everything's fine with family and baby and this church and everything like that. Um, but just uh, some news about a friend of mine just has me really sad and like in that space today. So uh, when I'm sad, I tend to be less nuanced. So if you're just like, like well, I need more clarification there because it feels like you just kind of just said it, and I don't really. I need more context. Um, please come talk to me afterwards. If you have a Bible, please turn to First Thessalonians chapter four. I'm going ver- to read verses one through eight, and then I'll pray. First Thessalonians four one through eight. Verse one: As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of another brother or sister. The Lord will punish those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, I um, just submit this time to you and all of my capacities to you, my kind of sad heart and my mind, but also the conviction that lies um, upon me right now just as the, the pastor of this church. And I pray that you would help me to communicate these things in ways that breathe the life of God into people. Not the life of the world, not the encouragement that comes from the world, not even the sorrow that comes from the world, but the life of God and even the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. So I pray that that would happen today and that you'd give us ears to hear and really hearts that are changed by your scripture today, I pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I never really opened up a sermon like this, but the first thing I want to say is from verse one. That's how I'm opening up the sermon, just so you know. Verse one, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God. So for you to get your mind and heart and body around sex and sexuality that we've been talking about for three weeks now and having had two lectures on it. Um, In this culture that we find ourselves in, for you to, to get your mind around what the scriptures teach about sex and sexuality and I would even add for you as a person immersed in the culture that we live in today, for you to get your mind and heart around sexuality, you have to have a coherent philosophy of life. See, the reason why there's so much prohibition around sex in the New Testament and the teaching of, teachings of Jesus, if, if you can recall Jesus saying, he said, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. I mean, That's pretty intense teaching. The reason why the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus are so hard around the area of sex is because the writers of the New Testament are trying to teach the church a coherent way to live. And that coherent, consistent way to live is summarized throughout the New Testament as living to please God. See, the, the, the way that we're to, to orb, our lives are to orbit, if you're a follower of Jesus, around this idea of living to please God, that should be our coherent philosophy of life, learning to live in all of life in reference to God, to please God, to live a life holy to God. See, most of us, if we're honest, we don't have a coherent philosophy of life. We live in the age that philosopher Charles Taylor called the age of authenticity. We live today in what is called by philosophers the age of authenticity, which goes something like this. I'll sum up a giant thousand-page book for you. I have to be true to myself. That is the age in which we live. Every single one of us, because we live in this culture, have this thing where if I say you have to be true to yourself, you have to do you, it resonates with every single one of us. Every one of us, Christian or not, we're like, if I just said, hey, you know what? You have to be true to you. You'd be like, yes. Oh, my gosh. No one's ever said that to me before. Thank you. That resonates so deeply. Listen, people weren't saying that 50 years ago. People weren't saying that 100 years ago. That is the current collective imagination of our culture. We don't have a, a coherent philosophy of life in this age of authenticity because there isn't allowed to be one. Because in an attempt to be true to ourselves, we are picking and choosing different philosophies from all over the place. Wherever seems to make us truly us. So we, we, we take some of like from church, like there's some things that I like that, you know, my pastor says at the church and I take some of what he says and teaches and that I, I, I kind of derive a philosophy from some of his teachings and then I listen to all these different podcasts and I take some from there and there's this really good Netflix documentary that I take some from there and then these conversations I have with my coworkers that are really compelling and then, you know, there's some family of origin stuff just the way I grew up and that's how I have a philosophy of life. And what this means is that because we don't have a coherent philosophy of life, we don't have a goal for living. We don't have a telos. I'm not talking about the goal you have at your current job or your goal to, that you've set for kind of reconduing your closet or whatever. I'm talking about like the the goal that you have, the grand goal of your life. The telos. What is the purpose of your life? What is the coherent philosophy that you're living from? Many of us have a hard time naming this. It's because we've never paused to consider our grand goal in living. And it's understandable why we haven't, because our culture doesn't encourage people to think about these things. It's actually, our our culture provides us with an endless stream of distractions so we never have to think about this. We make our goal the next gadget or the next apartment or the next relationship or the next getaway that we're, the next travel that 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 we're planning. And we do this enough and for so often that there's a strong possibility of turning 50 without ever considering our grand goal for living, without any coherent philosophy of life. Why is it important to have such a philosophy? I came across this book that I quoted to you and read a few years ago called The Guide to the Good Life, and the author opens like this. Why is it important to have a philosophy of life? Because without one, there is a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you are on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you have wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various babbles life has to offer. So... To choose a coherent philosophy as a follower of Jesus is to choose Jesus. That's the coherent philosophy that we live by. So if you're a Christian, the reason why I think it's important for you to choose a philosophy, and I would argue if you are a Christian, there is a philosophy already chosen for you, and it's called Jesus. Jesus is a philosophy, in that he is a way of life. He is the way of life. He literally says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The early followers of Jesus were called to be followers of the way. What do they mean by that? Followers of the way. The way of Jesus. There is a philosophy of life that the, I would say what needs to unite this church reality San Francisco is united in following the way of Jesus. So the way of Jesus when it comes to money is your way of life. The way of Jesus when it comes to hospitality is your way of life. The way of Jesus when it comes to what to do about your enemies is your way of life. The way of Jesus when it comes to your body and sex is your way of life. And so what I'm saying is when you're like, what do I think about sex? The first thing you should do as a follow Jesus is what does Jesus think about sex? What do I think about enemy love? What does Jesus think about enemy love? What do I think about money? What does Jesus think about money? That is our coherent philosophy of life. You are not allowed as a follower of Jesus to throw away the teachings of Jesus and say, you know what? But this person has something better to say that resonates with the true me inside of me. Now, here's the question. Some of you are like, okay, okay. If that's the case, I'm cool with Jesus and his way of life because he seems like a really nice person. By the way, if you think that you should read his teachings, he, (laughs) he has some things to say to some people. I just put it that way. Now, you might say, okay, okay, cool. We can agree. I'll follow Jesus' teachings, but why do I have to listen to 1 Thessalonians and this writer named Paul? Because I don't really like him that much. Why do I have to listen to Paul? Here's why. verses four, uh, Verses 1 and 2. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please guys. In fact, you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord... Jesus to do this more and more, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Verse 8, therefore anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being or Paul, but, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. See Paul, and you need to hear this, Paul is teaching under the authority of Jesus. Meaning, Jesus gave him this authority. Jesus gave the apostles and later on Paul the authority to carry on his teachings, to carry on his life and ministry. And there was something very potent about those first 12 apostles that carried on the life and ministry of Jesus, that spoke as if Jesus was speaking, that led as if Jesus was, were actually talking scripture. Even Peter refers back to the things that Paul writes and says, what Paul's writing is scripture. They knew it at the time that Paul and Peter and John, when they're writing because they've spent time with Jesus, because they were appointed by Jesus, they were speaking under the authority of Jesus. So Paul has the ministry and the authority to take the teachings of Jesus, which were primarily taught in a Jewish context with a Jewish worldview to the Gentiles, to people who didn't grow up with a Jewish worldview. This is why, for example, when Paul planted churches in places like Thessalonica and Corinth, places that were deeply non-Jewish, when he planted churches there, he had to teach them how you lived sexually. Because, I mean, Jews understood how to live sexually. They had that for thousands of years. But Gentiles didn't know how to do that. Gentiles lived all kinds of different ways. They They lived with orgies. They lived with temple prostitutes. They lived with sex being their right. And so Paul comes in and very pointedly says, no, 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 this is how we live under the ethic of Jesus. So Paul came to teach them the way of Jesus. And the reason why it hits us so harshly, because Paul is primarily talking to audiences like us people that didn't grow up Jewish, that didn't grow up in homes where they shaped your Jew, uh, 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 Old Testament imagination around Genesis 1 and 2 and the Imago day and the fall in Genesis 3 and all the disobedience that happened in your culture for decades and years and generations until you're waiting for a Messiah to deliver you. you don't, we don't have that context. Our context is what is good in and around our culture, what's true to me, what feels right, what are my rights? And then Paul writes very pointedly in a context like that and says, this is the way of Jesus. So, Paul says, our way of living, our coherent philosophy needs to be this. We live to please God. That is our coherent philosophy of life. That is what we must do. We must live to please God. Now, the word please God is a phrase in Greek. It means this. Live in a way that you adapt yourself to the opinions and the desires of another. So don't think of it in terms of, I have to keep God happy with me. That's not the context. The context is, I'm gonna live to where I adapt my opinions and my desires around another. Who's that other? Who's that another? God. I'm gonna, I'm going to orient, I'm going to adapt my opinions about life and my desires for life around that of God. That's what it means to please God, that. So what are your opinions around sexuality? Orient them around God. What is your opinions about male and female? What are your, now we have a ton of them. I know we have a lot of them. And our job as being our role, our call as being people who have the coherent philosophy of life of living under Jesus is to then adapt those opinions and those desires after around what God says. Now, what pleases God is that you are in Christ. That's what pleases God. How we please God is by aligning our lives to the the way of Jesus. I hope that makes sense. That might not. But you don't please God by going, I've done all the right things, God. Will you now kind of like accept me? We're accepted because we're in Christ. The way that we live now that we're in Christ in ways that please God, again, that phrase means I'm going to align my opinions and my desires around God. I live by aligning everything in my life around what Jesus says. I find this to be the simplest way. It's, it's not simple in its practice, but it's simple in its philosophy. The simplest way to live. If you are a Christian, I think you and I, we must, and this is kind of my job as a pastor, but you have to take some, you have to take some agency as well, being Christian. Just being intelligent and the fact that you can read, you should be taking agency in that. My philosophy of life should be the way of Jesus. What does that look like? What does Jesus say? What do the writers of the New Testament say? In taking the teachings of Jesus and living them out in the context of urban environments like we have, like that is that is our role. That is our job. We have to figure that out. So, this aligning our lives to Jesus' way is the coherent philosophy for the Christian. It is the way we're supposed to be living. It is the true north for us, the lens by which we see the world. Okay, so first, this whole context is living to please God. I hope I showed that. Verse three through five. Look at this. It is God's will, Paul goes on to say, that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual morality, that you each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God. Okay, first, this word sanctified. We should see and use sex differently than our culture. This word means we're set apart. We're different. See, most epistles, if you read the New Testament, most epistles, um, the the letters to the churches, have some sort of sexual ethic in their teaching. So, if you're looking at 1 Corinthians, if you're looking at 1 Thessalonians, if you're looking at uh, James, if you're looking at... um, uh, First Peter, if you're looking at any of these kind of uh, these epistles to the churches, you're, 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 when you're reading them, they have this like how we're supposed to live with our sex. How we're supposed to live with our sexuality. Now, why are those there in almost every single epistle? It's because the church, those that are followers of Jesus, use and see sex differently. If you start to see sex the way... America sees sex or California sees sex or San Francisco sees sex That is not how you're supposed to be conformed now. This is very difficult because this is like almost like fighting the The cultural storm that we're like in the middle of all the time And I understand it's difficult. It's difficult for me too, especially as someone who stands up and talks to hundreds and hundreds of people about this during a sex series in the middle of San Francisco But this is, this is uh, what the scriptures teach is that we are to be different. We're to be set apart. We need to use our sex and sexuality differently. This is why Paul uses the word sanctified. Each one of us, you need to be sanctified that you should, so he goes on to explain sanctification, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, uh, allow me to state the obvious. When the New Testament talks about sex, most of the time it's framed in the negatives. Flee sexual immorality, 1 Corinthians. Avoid sexual immorality, 1 Thessalonians. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, Ephesians 5. And the exclusions in Scripture with regard to sex may look like many, like loveless, heartless, thou shalt nots. So you might come to the Bible and you're like, you know what the Bible has to say about sex? It's just this loveless, heartless, telling me what to do that I can't do something. However, what I've been trying to point out in this series especially last Sunday, is that the commands grow out of God's positive vision for human flourishing. Because the reality is sex is not just like anything else. Sex is a fire. A fire so powerful, so precious, so close to the soul and the body of a person, and so from God, that it either gives life or takes it away. Every single time. It either gives life or takes it away, whether you are masturbating to pornography or hooking up with someone you just met on an, on an app on your phone. It is either sacred or destructive. It is never neutral. Sex is never neutral. and marriage, it's never neutral. It's never casual. It's never inconsequential. Sex is always doing something to you. To recall, if you remember Rollheiser from the first teaching, sexuality lies at the very center of the spiritual life. A healthy sexu- uh, sexuality is the single most powerful vehicle there is to lead us to selflessness and joy. Just as an unhealthy sexuality helps consolidate selfishness and unhappiness, it does nothing else. We will be happy in this life depending upon whether or not we have a healthy sexuality. Our sexuality is either moving us toward a healthy spiritual life or away from one. We are either using our sexuality to get our way, to try and cure our deepest loneliness, to have fun, to please ourselves, to cope with some emotional pain that has us in a destructive pattern, or to promise with our bodies what we have not yet promised with our bank accounts, or our living space, or by the state of California, as in, I do. Sexuality will either consolate selfishness, no matter how right and good it feels at the time, or it will lead to selfless joy. And the Bible seems to know this. It's like a book. If you've ever read the Bible from cover to cover, the Bible is basically a book of sexually broken people. It's the account of people who are sexually broken, starting on page three. Seriously. And then the entire time until the very end. It's just a bunch of sexually broken people. So what I'm not advocating for is that everyone in our, in our church is to be sexually whole and pure. No, that, I don't know if, it, if there will be a single church like that, this side of the new heavens and the new earth. We are all sexually broken people, every single one of us, and are all being put together by the redemption that is in Christ. That is, but that's the cohesive vision, like we're moving towards Jesus. Now, what the Bible will not allow us to do, and I want you to hear me very clearly. What the Bible, what the Holy Spirit, I'll get even more authoritative, what Jesus and the Holy Spirit will not allow us to do is call what is wrong, right. It will not allow us to say that sexual immorality is not wrong. That we, should, we shouldn't flee from it. That we shouldn't avoid it. That won't do. We're not allowed to do that. We have to say we are, and there's this tension, we are broken, all of us, every single one of us, no matter where you're coming from, single, married, gay, straight, and everything, all the spectrums that we place in between them. All of us are broken, every single one of us. And what the scriptures don't say is that like, and it's okay to stay in the state that you're in. It's moving all of us toward what Revelation talks about as the new heavens, new earth in on earth as it is in heaven. That's what it's doing to all of us. And it's doing all of that in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it's doing. That's what the Scriptures are trying to do. So we can't call… The Bible will not allow us, the Spirit of God will not allow us to call something that it prohibits or something wrong, right. But it will do is allow us the grace to come in just as we are and be transformed into Christ's body that's what it will allow us to do. Now look at verse 4. Each of you should learn to control your own body. Learning self-control is a part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is why we had the church fast at the beginning of this series. Some of you, a lot of you have done it. I heard some of you are like, I'm never going to do that. We can talk about fast food. I get amazing free food at my startup. There's no way I'm fast that stuff. So for some of you, I get it. You're not doing it. But for others, I have heard and I have seen in my own life, which again, food is like my love language. There should be a sixth love language, food. I don't know if that's a thing, but all the love languages is in food, right? So, but what I've learned is what Christians throughout the centuries since the early church have learned is that fasting has a way of getting our bodies in line with the Spirit of God to where we're dependent on the Spirit and not food or not the flesh or not the impulses, not the desires. Our desires begin to shift to pleasing God. Fasting is a very practical way of doing that. So I would ask you, if you didn't fast over the last month with us, start next week. If you are fasting, well just keep it going. Keep it going. Keep it going forever. Let's just keep going. Um, Now, I don't, that was a tangent, sorry. Um, Notice here that Paul compares living in self-control against the passionate lust of pagans who do not know God. He's saying there are two ways to live, life in reference to God, or life in reference to self, those who do not know God. Even if you say you know God, you live as if you don't know God, because you're living your life in reference to yourself, not in reference to God, you see what he's saying? If you are living your life in reference to God, you have both the power and the vision to live a life of controlling your own body. I know that I I meant to do a huge part of this teaching on pornography. Um, And to be honest, I got really depressed studying about pornography. I got depressed studying about the amount of people in the church, out of the church that are looking at pornography, both men and women, is not a man issue. It is a human issue right now. Uh, Plenty, almost in equal parts, women struggle with pornography, just like men. So, it's a human issue. Um, It's not just a man issue. And I think our culture places it as a man issue, which, like, makes women feel less than, or like they're trying to be like a man, or it makes men who don't struggle with pornography feel like they're not being men. And I think it's just so wicked. All of it is wicked. And all of it's really deformed. But I think I got depressed with reading and studying what it does to women who are in pornography, as in in pornography shoots and film. And then I just got into a really dark, depressing black hole, and I just stopped. So that's where I left it. I don't think I have to argue so much that the effects of pornography, what it does to the brain, I think that's really well documented, and I think I don't have to talk much about how abusive pornography is. I think there are some people in our church that might see it as a healthy form of, uh, at least I'm not sleeping with so-and-so or so-and-so, but the effects, sex is a fire. You're doing something every single time, every time, and I'll talk about, I'll, I'll get back to that at the end, so I'll just, I'll just kind of stop there for a second. What, um, if you're living your your life in reference to God, you can live actually controlling your body. And here's what I mean by that. That doesn't mean that you just stop doing things. So I want you to hear this. The goal of life is not to stop looking at porn and stop sleeping around and stop having sexual desires. That's not like really the, it's to how do you in a healthy way channel them? See, when you're, when, when, um, my, my daughter, uh, Juniper, is just learning how to eat at the dinner table right now. And it's beautiful. And uh, what we're trying not to do is we're Ash has her eating kind of certain foods and she's kind of feeding herself and doing all these things. And she has this energy to where she like grabs food and she eats it and then she just like throws it. like, And then, and then scrapes it off and then feeds it to Prince and then Prince is like, oh, this is I love this so much. And then… But what we don't say is, no! That's so bad. You're bad. You're a bad person. No good or no parent should do that. You know this. You know this intuitively. You don't tell them, no, that's bad. You say, it. you channel that energy. That, that's energy. That's the energy that, the, that my daughter has right now in eating. It's all beautiful energy. And my job as a parent is to channel that energy in life-giving ways, in ways where the food goes into her body and it nourishes her, Right? <laughs> That's, that's my, that's like, I'm trying to, we're trying to do that. I'm not trying, Ash is doing a way better job. It's like trying to channel it this way, right? And we don't throw food on guests. Like, that's not what we do, right? We channel it. We don't like say, stop, stop, stop. That is not, the the goal in sexuality is not like, stop lusting and stop doing this and stop looking at porn and stop. It's channeling it in life-giving ways. Okay, that is the point. How do we channel this fire that is sex in a a life-giving way? Now refer to the the first teaching, we think that having a sexuality equals having sex. So, you're thinking, how do I channel pornography in ways that are glorifying to God? Is there a Christian porn that I can look at? Like, no. There is not. Are there redeemed ways I can masturbate? I can think of really good kingdom things and masturbate. Probably not. Probably, probably not. What I mean by channeling your sexuality is, um, I think of what Rollheiser writes in his book On Holy Longing, is that, well, first of all, how do you define Christian sexuality? Sexuality is beautiful, good, extremely powerful, and a sacred energy given to us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an impressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move toward unity and consumption and consummation with that which is beyond us. It is also the pulse to celebrate, to give and receive delight, to find our way back to the Garden of Eden, where we are naked and shameless. Ultimately, though, all these hungers in their full maturity culminate in one thing. Our sexuality culminates in one thing, to make us co-creators with God. Mothers and fathers, artisans and creators, big brothers and big sisters, nurses and healers, teachers and counselors, farmers and producers, administrators and community builders, co-responsible with God for the planet, standing with God and smiling at the blessing in the world. So for me, the way that I've, I've felt this is, be, if you know Ashley and I, my, our story, we couldn't have kids for a long time, like 15 years where we could not get pregnant. And there came a point in our journey where I saw my generativity as I am a father to many people at our church and in San Francisco. And my generativity was channeled that way. Ashley's generativity was channeled that way. To be honest, I never, we never needed a child to be fully human. We didn't even need marriage to be fully human. I know church planners and pastors and ministers and counselors and teachers and sisters and nurses and healers that are not married. What we need in our sexuality is generativity is to channel our sexual fire in ways that give life, that truly give life, which is what I believe, like, I, I talk about, well, I won't share that, never mind, I'll, sorry, I'm getting way off script here. Now given that definition of that's generativity, sexuality in its mature bloom does not necessarily look like love scenes in movies. What does sexuality look like in full bloom? When you see a young mother so beaming with delight at her own child that for a moment all selfish, selfishness within her is given away to sheer joy of seeing her child happy, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see an artist after long frustration look with such satisfaction on the work she has just completed that everything else for a moment is blotted out, you are seeing sexuality in its full bloom. When you see a young man cold, wet, but happy to have been of service, standing on a dock where he has carried the unconscious body of a child that he has just saved from drowning, you are seeing sexuality in its full bloom. When you see any person, man, woman, or child, who in a moment of service, affection, love, friendship, creativity, joy, or compassion is for that moment so caught up in what is beyond him or her that for that instant his or her separateness from others is overcome, you are seeing sexuality in its full and mature bloom. When you see God having just created the earth or just seeing Jesus baptized in the Jordan River, look down on what he has, what has just happened and say, it is good, in this I take delight, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. He said, Rollheiser says, sexuality is not about finding a lover or even finding a friend. It is about overcoming separateness by giving life and blessing it. Thus, in its maturity, sexuality is about giving oneself over to community and friendship, and family, service, creativity, humor, delight, and martyrdom so that with God we can help bring life into the world. By the way, that is the reason why you're a Christian. You might have forgotten that. I, I forget that too sometimes, a lot of times. I am a Christian to carry on the generativity of the resurrection. That what was dead is now alive, I carry that in my body. Paul says, I carry around the dying of Jesus in my body so that the life of Jesus might be manifested through me. I carry in my body the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And I carry that wherever I go. When I'm with someone who's poor. When I'm with someone who's in need. When I'm with someone who needs my, like, creativity and what I have to give to them so they can become fully themselves. That is what, the, that's what being a Christian is. So, learning to control our body is not just so that we say no to pornography and lust and and hooking up. It's so that we can move on to being generative, to channel our sexuality in ways that are giving life to San Francisco. But why is this so difficult? You might be getting a moment right now of like, that's what life is about. That's it. I see it. I get a vision of it. I want to do that. I want to stop looking at pornography and do what he's saying. Why is it so difficult? Why is sex and sexuality so damned hard to figure out? This is a struggle for every single one of us. The main reason this is a struggle of our, this is the struggle of our time, is that we have come to place the full weight of our personal identity on ordinary life. Our material here and now existence carries the weight of our entire identity. So our entire identity is placed on our relational status. I'm single, I'm married, I'm divorced. Or our sexual orientation, or our job, or where we've traveled and Instagrammed about it. The weight of our identity is placed in the here and now squarely, and it becomes so hard to think beyond this life. And so if I tell someone that Celibacy to Jesus is actually a high, beautiful call, and not a call as in you have to be called to it, but a call as in if you're a Christian, you are called to it. If you're not married, and if you're married, it's even harder to live the call of Jesus because it, Jesus said it's way different. And Paul says, I wish that you were single. We have so much romanticism in our culture that we, and we place so much into the satisfaction of our sexual lives, as in an orgasm, we boil it down to an orgasm, that, and romantic, like, I, I, I like just to have pizza with you and watch Netflix and chill, whatever. Like, we boil everything down to that, that we don't really think naturally of the next life. When's the last time you thought of the next life? Like, honestly, the, the, the next life. Like, yes, I may be, as it says in AA, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and exceedingly happy in the life to come. Who thinks like that? Who's like, you know, I, you know, if I'm just reasonably happy here, I'm cool. Because I want to be exceedingly happy in the life to come. Amen. Who like thinks like that on a day-to-day basis? Who like fasts and say, I just want to be reasonably happy. So if I have, if I break my fast at dinner tonight, great. I just want to be reasonably happy. Because I want to be extremely happy, <laughs> exceedingly happy in the life to come. See, we've placed all of our weight here. And so you might get like these visions of like, I can do this. This is generativity, life-giving, kingdom of God, I want to do this. And then we step out of this place and we just think of the here and now. We think of like, if my Uber driver doesn't pick me up first, <laughs> before he picks up this other person, and then why I'm tracking him? Why is he going down? I would never take that route. <laughs> why is he going down that route? This guy is and it like that sort of like this life. That's all we think about. This life. You who build apps. If I I was a writer of the Bible, I would start a chapter like that. You who build apps. (laughs) You know you do this. You try to get people involved in not just this life, but this little screen for as long as they can. There is no apps that that like pop up a scroll and saying, who are you becoming? And what is your next life going to be about? (laughs) Is this eternal? Like that's just not, but this is how Christians are to think. To think eternally. This is why sexuality is so hard because it's an eternal thing. I will not be married in the new heavens and new earth. I won't be married. You won't be single. We will all be married to Jesus. Amen. All of us. We, thinking eternally is so hard to like calibrate and, and to think, but we have to remember this. Verse six, I have to keep moving. No one should wrong or take advantage of another brother or sister in this way, in this matter. So, Paul's saying, you know, you have to avoid sexual morality. You have to, because we're sanctified. We're people who don't use sex like the world uses sex. Actually, when we use sex like the world uses sex, it's actually taking advantage in wronging some other brother or sister. What does he mean by this? The Greek word for wrong or take advantage means to wrongly take something from someone through deceptive means. Now, this is the idea of defrauding someone, taking something that is not one's own through deceptive motives. Now, how is having sex with someone outside of marriage deceptive? Because you're lying with your body. You're saying two things with your body that are not true. One, I'm committing my whole self to you. That's not true. And two, you're saying, this is what our bodies are made for. Sex, pleasure, desire, love, passion. This is what our bodies are made for. Let's do it. You are lying with your body. Therefore, Paul says, you're defrauding another brother or sister. You're defrauding someone in the church. And if you're not, you're like, well, I'm not sleeping with people in the church. Well, then that's a whole different verse. But, you know, it's the same thing. (laughs) But in the church, it's even more nasty because you're defrauding someone in the church. Now, I want to be clear in regards to cohabitation as couples, sex before the covenant of marriage, and everything else. I want to just be really, really clear. It's defrauding someone, and it's not how we live in the ways that are pleasing to God. If, like, we're cohabitating, we're not sleeping together. Okay, well, maybe you should get some accountability around that. And maybe it's working for you. I don't know if it's wise, but, but sex before the covenant of marriage. Not engagement, because that's not marriage. Engagement's different. You can break off an engagement just by saying, oh, we broke off, and then change your status on Facebook, like that. And it's hard, of course. It's hard, and you cry, all this stuff. Marriage is legal. It's a whole different thing costs a lot more money. Like it's that whole thing. It's this whole like I'm in, finances, life, names, all this stuff. And breaking that off, that's, that's different. So before covenant of marriage, it's defrauding and it's just not pleasing to God. Not even like God's mad or sad at you, though that's true. Paul says there's punishment for this. But in that you're not aligning your life and values up to the, the way of Jesus. And again, what I mean is that your way of life is not aligned to God's way of life. So, I want to close by saying this. I cannot, cannot, as a pastor of one of Jesus' churches, who will be judged by Christ himself, see the first few chapters of Revelation, if you want context for that. I cannot, as a pastor of one of Jesus' churches, change what Jesus says about sex and sexuality. I can't. And what the New Testament teaches about sexuality, I can't change it. No matter what that brings to our church, to me, to the, from the city, from people in this church, whatever, I can't change it. I can try to teach on it in a compelling way that brings life, but I can't change it. But I want to acknowledge the sheer power of sexuality in our lives there is a force there is a power there are people right now in this series that have been deeply hurt by what has been said over the last 4 weeks because there is power in this in our sexuality and because we live in a culture that utterly that lives utterly different than the teachings of Jesus and i will i'm going to call something out that i think you need to hear you will feel a different pressure and an added level of complexity just by being in the walls of this church or being a part of this church. You will feel a different layer of shame connected to to, um, sex here. You will feel a different layer of guilt being in the church here. You just will. And here's why. Because what God calls us to is different than what you might hear in the world. And so when you come inside the church, there will be a lot of, like there's a book I read on pornography that says that Almost the exact same numbers of people in the church and outside of the church are looking at pornography, which is depressing just even thinking of it. But everyone in the church says it's wrong. Everyone in the church is like, yeah, it's wrong, but they do it anyway, which what what it does, it, it, it either breeds a ton of shame or a calloused heart. Where those outside the church, there isn't that. You look at porno, yeah, we make fun, we, we laugh at it. We're like, okay, just keep it at home. Don't look at it in, the, in public, just consensual, all this other stuff. There isn't that layer outside of the church. So, of course, when you come in the church, there'll be a layer of shame that is not there outside. The answer is not to get rid of that by saying, hey, it's okay. There is shame in the church around sex. There is. There's um, an added weight of shame in the church around sex. There's an added weight of, of guilt in the church and confusion in the church around sex. And the answer, the only answer is confession and repentance. I can't get rid of that shame. That shame has to be brought to Jesus that makes us naked and unashamed. Jesus does it. I don't do that. There is a layer of guilt that you come in a room and talk about sex. Most people in this room, probably 90% of us feel guilty. I can't take that away by saying something really nice to you. All I can say is, take that to Jesus. Amen. So, if you are in the church looking for the church to be socially aware enough to remove the guilt and the shame that is associated with sex, the Bible says we just can't do that. We have to call out, this is sexual morality. this is sin, and what you do with your sin because we're all sinners is take it to Jesus. We don't remove it by saying, let's just reteach something. And all I can do is say, take your guilt and take your shame and take your pain to Jesus. Now, some of that wrongly placed is some of that shame, like wrongly placed. Like I probably shouldn't feel shame over that. Probably some of that is, but the answer is still the same. Take it to Jesus. Allow Christ to heal, like completely heal. That's the answer since Jesus rose from the dead. I'm not going to change the answer either. The answer is a life of confession and repentance, and no one is immune to that. Even if you sin in a category that you think the church accepts or not, no one is immune to it. All of us need Christ. Every single one of us in this room. If you have a heavy heart right now, if you know that the heaviness of this topic is crushing you, All I know to do is to help you take all of that to Christ, who is our Lord. So over and over again, Paul says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. And we take all of this to him. Would you stand with me as we spend some time in prayer?